I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to your second special gift from us here at the Eurotrip, just because it's the festive season. It doesn't mean we are not going to be here to give you another episode of the podcast. Things are a little bit different, of course. As you heard last week, we aren't giving you the news in 90. You don't have a European quiz. And unfortunately, you don't have a one second song. Fear not, though, the one second song will return next week, as well as your first episode of the Euro Trip for 2021. But as James said, for now, this is our second special gift over the festive period. Last week, we gave you a feature-length interview with Paul Harrington and Charlie McGettigan, the rock and roll kids from Ireland, the winners of Eurovision 1994. And a fascinating insight you can look forward to on this episode, because James has sat down with the series producer of the BBC's Eurovision coverage. So this is the insight you need into the UK and their approach to Eurovision. Absolutely. As a fan sitting at home, I'm sure, especially British fans at least, often sit there and think, why won't the BBC do this? Why won't the BBC do that? Or why the BBC being so quiet on social media about the Eurovision Song Contest? Well, your answers are coming your way today because I've sat down with, as Rob says, the series producer of the BBC's Eurovision coverage, Lee Smithhurst. He's been a fan of the contest for a long, long time and he's been working for the BBC for many years and on the coverage of Eurovision for the past few years as well. So if there's anybody in the world who's going to give us an insight into how the BBC selection works, about their processes, about what it's like to be on the ground uh, in the host city, it's Lee Smithhurst. And I started off by reminding Lee himself that he's been a fan of the Eurovision Song Contest for a very long time. I have. Uh, I'll tell you how I first actually got interested in Eurovision. Um, I obviously knew what it was as a, as a, a child, but my, uh, 
my mum's friend actually is a songwriter and they wrote a song for Song for Europe in 1989, uh, which was, um, it was called You Stepped Out My Dreams by a lady called Julie C. And it actually came second. It didn't win. But it was that weird thing of, uh, you know, it's a family friend that you know has entered the contest. So obviously we watched that and we watched them come second and obviously they didn't go to Eurovision. But because of that, that was the first year I remember avidly watching it, just because I was so involved in that competition and wanting them to win. Um, so that was the first one I can remember properly watching in 1989. And then my love of it just spawned from there, really. Like, I just got addicted to it. I've always, if I look back, I always liked things, I don't know if you're the same, uh, like Olympics and competitions with countries competing against each other. It was just something that I don't know what it was. It was just something that attracted me to those things. And Eurovision was sort of my biggest favourite of all those. And um, as a teenager, I used to uh, I used to come home from school and I used to put that year's Eurovision on. It used to drive my mum absolutely crazy. And I used to do that for pretty much the entire year until a new one came along and then I'd watch it again. So I've been obsessed for ages. So it's I always knew I wanted to work in telly, not necessarily Eurovision. I just thought that was going to be a hobby. But then it just coincided that the, the same things aligned which is is great for me so what was that like then so you've grown up you've been this obsessive fan like like the rest of us really uh you get jobs in television doing bits and pieces for some of the biggest tv channels in the uk but then you land a job at the bbc producing the eurovision coverage i mean that's just a dream come true right yeah, I mean, it all happened. I mean, what I try and do now is obviously I get a lot of emails from people that want to start out or how can I get into it? And I, I know I was that person at one time. So I always try and reply to people and give them as much advice as I can. I mean, I, I wrote a letter. This is going back quite a while. So in 1997, uh, I wrote a letter to the then head of entertainment called Kevin Bishop. And I was a teenager at this point. And I'd said, uh, I'd love to be involved in Eurovision anyway. I don't, I didn't really know anything about TV. I didn't know what jobs there were. I just said, I would love to be involved in it in some way. Is there anything I could do? Never ever thinking that I would get a response. And it was a proper letter that I wrote. And he wrote me a letter back. uh, And he said, would you be interested in being on the jury for the Eurovision? And at at that point, 97, I don't know if you remember, was the first year that televoting was introduced. So the UK jury was a backup jury because it, I think we were one of the first countries to do the televote. I don't think they all did it that year. So I knew it was going to be a backup jury. But in those days, there were 16 of us on the jury. And I was the youngest member of that jury. It was made up of music professionals and ordinary civilians. So I was on that jury. Uh, and that's sort of how it all started from that moment, which is weird to think that if I'd never written that letter, would I be here now doing this job because the things that happened afterwards in my career all happened from that moment which is great. So give us an idea of what happened from then on. So in 97 you're on the jury and it took until 2018 until you were the producer of the BBC's coverage. So what happened in those what almost 20 years? So uh, I'll try and keep it brief. So 97 I was on the jury. There she is. She's the winner. Katrina and the wave. Composer Kimberly Rue, conductor Don Airy, making their way to the stage through the congratulations of the other contestants. As always, the scoring was eccentric, to say the least about it. Roland Keating is bringing Katrina on. Leather trousers are it. 
I was the youngest person on the jury, as I said, and then I met another guy on the jury who was a similar age to me called Alan Jones, who's not the singer Alan Jones, another Alan Jones. And uh, we sort of struck up a friendship. We're still friends to this day. Um, and he ended up being a runner on Eurovision in 98 in Birmingham. And I just moved down to London then, I think. Uh, he ended up becoming a runner and got me a ticket to the final of Eurovision in 98. And that was my first time I'd ever been to Eurovision. And then from that, I've been to everyone since, apart from Jerusalem in 99. But from meeting Alad, he was a runner at the BBC. And then I got connected to a lot of people that worked there. Um, Alad, weirdly, funnily enough, is now the head of Radio 1. So it's strange to think that those, you know, back then, 20 years ago, over that, we were both just, you know, normal teenagers, just uh, with a love for Eurovision that ended up on this jury that have got some great jobs out of it that we both that we both love. So that's how it started off. And then I started working in TV. I did loads of different shows. I've done a lot of the, sort of since then, sort of over the years, I've done all the sort of Strictly's and then sort of in the last 10 years done more sort of, uh, event and live stuff so things like soccer aid you know the celeb uh, charity match happens once a year things like the jump which was the celeb winter sports show that was out in austria this time next year surprise surprise all those sort of big studio entertainment shows um i did work on eurovision in the 2008 2009 year which was the jade year because i was in the bbc entertainment department at that time and then it took sort of 10 years to get back into it but that job happened actually 2018, there was a new uh, managing director of entertainment music at the BBC called Susie Lam. So she'd just taken over. So that was the year after Surrey. And I've always wanted to do Eurovision. It feels like it fits in all the other shows that I was doing. It's just, you know, when people are on that show, it's, I think it was, uh, I, don't, I don't know Helen Riddell, but she was there for five years before that and Guy Freeman. So they were sort of a team for five years. So unless no one leaves, there isn't really a position open. But I, I heard that they were leaving and I knew Susie because we'd worked together before. So I just asked if we could have a chat. And then the next thing, you know, that was it. I was, I was doing it. So I started in 2018. But it's difficult, you know, it is difficult being a fan of it and working on it at the same time. You, you have to remember that as much as I'm a fan and don't get me wrong, I would love to just enter Fuego every year because that is something that I would want to see. But it's more about a strategy of how can we actually get back to doing well, which is different to that, as I'm sure you can imagine. I can well imagine, yeah. What are your your day-to-day responsibilities then? Because a lot of fans out there will know the term head of delegation, but that's not what your job is, is it? Your job is very different to that. So give us an idea of what you would sort of do and sit down to do on a day-to-day basis. So I, so obviously when I started in 2018, we still had you decide. So that format was decided before I started, you know, the, the change of the format with the two songs. So then that year I came on to do, to do that show, um, plus Eurovision. So it was starting that year of working out that format. How are we going to make this work? We had a new musical director called Greg Watts. Um, so it was going through all the songs, obviously auditioning loads of singers to match singers with songs. And then some singers, as you know, some of them sounded more like the demo and then other people took them away to make it more in their style, which was the format of the show. So for the first year, that was, that was mainly what I was doing, which was working on that format. And then obviously after we had a winner and Michael Rice was there, then my job becomes more of just concentrating on the act. So the staging, the people that are going to be on stage, like the backing singers, all the promo that goes with it. 
what Michael could do in between, obviously trying to get him as much press exposure as possible. Um, and our aim actually for the You Decide was I'd noticed that after all the finals that I hadn't been involved in, that no one ever really seemed to release their songs if they didn't, if they didn't win. So we looked at the ways of how we could get a release out as quick as possible, which was getting the songwriters up front to agree on the terms of, you know, even if it doesn't win, the artist should be able to release this song. Whether they do it independently or through that label and writers, it was up to them to decide that. But just that there wouldn't be a hold up process of songwriters saying, we don't want this to be released. We might now rework it and give it to another artist. Um, which actually has done really well for both Kerry Ann and Jordan, I think. Jordan especially. I mean, he's had nearly 20 million streams of Freaks now, which, you know, it's all sort of small victories. I know he didn't do well at Eurovision that year, but in terms of like a plan of what you want is that if you're going to do a national final, you want people, even if they don't win, to be able to have some kind of success off it. Otherwise, why would people enter? And then uh, the 2019-20 year was different because we didn't have a national final. So it was working, uh, there's a creative director called Mel Ballack. So we work together. She's at BBC Studios. So between uh, sort of the launch date and before that, we'd work with BMG on what we wanted. So obviously we met a few different labels and production companies of people that were interested in taking over an internal selection. But BMG were, and I'm sure we spoke about this at the time last year when everything was revealed, were just the most enthusiastic about it. They understood it. They didn't see it as this poison chalice like quite a lot of people do. And they were, they were just keen to get involved. And, you know, it's a challenge for them as well to see if they could, if they could change people's way of thinking. And they've got some of the, you know, they, the good thing is that their artists and publishers are under one arm at BMG. So they have some of the best uh, songwriters that are published through BMG. And that's, ultimately, it's a song competition. I know you still need a good act to sell it, but they had access to the best writers. Um, and I think a few things we set out early on with BMG were to, we just wanted the UK to be credible again, because it's a long-term goal of, what do we need to do to attract bigger artists to actually take part in this and represent the UK? And you, you need to lay the foundations, I think, for a couple of years of, okay, these are credible songs that have been streaming hits or radio hits, and we did quite well at Eurovision. And it's frustrating that obviously last year's, or this year's 2020 was cancelled because we never actually got to see how that would play out for James. But I think that sort of was my job on 19 and 20, which is, okay, we're not having a national final, but what's the long-term goal here? And that's basically to attract the best talent possible to enter for the UK and not feel like it's going to hurt their career. And whether that is, you know, a radio hit, streaming numbers, a good result at Eurovision, all those things are important. I think if you solely concentrate on what is a Eurovision winner, it doesn't necessarily mean that you could have a Eurovision one year and then still come last the next year. And it was just, you know, it's got to be better than that, that we can be doing well for, you know, five to 10 years in a row. I think the Dutch example is a good one. Seems that they've got, you know, they've got a, a string of, since they picked a nuke, a string of just credible hits. And that to me is what we should be doing. And I'm not saying we should never have those big up-tempo bangers or, you know, the novelty acts again, but I don't think you can enter a novelty act until we've actually set our stall out again to say, we're actually taking it serious. I'll ask 
plenty more about the process since BMG came on board in a, in a, in a moment. But going back to 2019 then, so you've got Michael Weiss who's come out of You Decide. He's now the, the entrant and you've got loads to do between what would it have been February, March time and then May. How much do you do once you get on the ground in Tel Aviv? What does your role entail there? Are you working predominantly with Michael? Is there much to do with Graham who's commentating or is it sort of foot off the gas for you by then? Do you not really have much to do? Do you just get to relax and enjoy it really? <laughs> uh, I wish. Do you know what? It is fun though. But I um, So we're, we split in half. So Andrew Cartmel, who's the exec. So Andrew comes on usually about five weeks before Eurovision. Um, so when Andrew comes on, he is across the BBC four shows and uh, Graham and Ryland and Scott in the commentary booth because it, it's easy to split our time. So he does that and he uh, oversees everything that's going on back in London, which is the vote. Um, and I'm solely based with the act. So that is Michael plus the backing singers, plus everything that goes in that team, you know, the stylist, the makeup artist, the, the creative director and the vocal coach or the sound guys. They are sort of all my uh, responsibility. And sometimes you feel like a tour manager where you're just counting heads on the bus when you get on in the morning. But it's, it's basically just managing that team and making sure we're doing what we should be doing and we're ready for all the rehearsals. But yeah, it, it's sort of a busy week. It's a fun week because obviously I'm, I consider myself to have the fun job. Like I'm in all the fun stuff. I'm in the rehearsals. I sit in the green room when the points come in. Not so fun in 2019. But, you know, it's a great experience and I'm so thankful to be able to do it. But I take it serious as a job at the same time because, I, and I think even last year, just thinking about the rehearsals and, you know, you sit in that room and you watch the rehearsals back and you watch all the, the cameras and things that you're not happy with. And it's frustrating because you want to do it as, as good as you can. And it's hard for me as a program maker because I'm so used to making shows here where you can change things because you're in a gallery or you can make that call. Whereas at Eurovision, it's harder because you aren't the person that is changing the cameras or is in the gallery and you have to relay your notes and hope that someone changes them. And that's a very frustrating process to be part of. So would you say that the result then for, for Michael in 2019 was, was that the catalyst for taking the decision away from the British public and you decide and then going into an internal selection. Was that the reason or the main reason for wanting to change it? Moving on to United Kingdom. And the public points to the United Kingdom are three points. Yes, I think so. I think, I think if you look at the result of, uh, of Michael, it's, it's more so the, the songs that you can attract. And Greg did a great job in getting the, the songs in. But you'll find in Eurovision that a lot of the songs are banded about between different countries and people try and steal different people's songs because there's a pool of people writing Eurovision songs and they pitch them to all kinds of different countries. And obviously it's, it's difficult for us because we don't have an internal selection or we didn't then. So a bit like what happened with uh, the Caesar Sampson song in 2018. I, I wasn't working on it then, but I know it was in the British selection. But then when Austria said that they would have it in an internal selection and that song would go to Eurovision, of course you would put that song in the Austrian and be the Austrian entry rather than in a British show. Because if it were to lose in the UK, then, like I said before, the song is sort of is dead after that point. Um, but it was to attract, I, I think really, after, after Michael didn't do so well in Tel Aviv, it was more about how can we attract the best British songwriters now and the best talent to take part. Um, 
and it wasn't about i think in the days gone by when you could attract blue and engelbert and bonnie tyler and obviously the engelbert and bonnie tyler didn't re- work either but they already had an album with songs on so nothing was really written specific for you know that wasn't they wanted to promote an album and eurovision was a great way to promote it but i think if we want to do well it has to be someone who's engaged in the competition and actually is either writing for that or understands the process of it and that's what bmg have done so well which is understand we want an artist that actually wants to go and work on it and we want to get the best writers and for the bbc it's quite difficult because we you can attract a certain talent to it but you can't nurture them afterwards because we're not a record label so bbc studios can you can call up the talent and they might have a song ready to go but that's sort of a quick fix it doesn't end it doesn't fix the long-term problem which bmg hopefully will be able to do because they're a label so it's attractive to a new artist to say, hey, here's a deal. Your lead single could be Eurovision and then we'll support you on an album afterwards. There's much more of an incentive than us to call them up and go, have you got a song? Do you want to do it? And then if you lose, you won't hear from us again, which isn't the case. You do hear from them. But what I mean is that there's no real support from a, a music point of view because we can't help some, an artist that doesn't do well at Eurovision after that if there's no support. If no one picks them up from a label, you know, I think that's that's the main thing. It's the care for the artist. How much of an involvement then do you have, or at least the wider BBC team have, with BMG once that sort of deal has been arranged? So back in, what was it, September 2019, it gets announced that the BBC and BMG team together. But do then BMG just go off and they do their own thing? They go and look for the artist, they go and look for the song, and then report back to you and say, this is what we think? Or is it much more of a combined effort? Yeah, it's a collaborative effort. I mean, they do go and find this, that that's their remit to go and find the artist and the song, but BBC Studios have the final sign off on who that would be. And it isn't a thing of they present someone to us and we say, no, we don't like them. And then they get annoyed. It's very much a collaborative process. So in the James year, they presented several different artists of who might be interested. And then you look at the pros and cons of each one. And James sort of at that point, what I said to you before about being credible, James ticks all those boxes of, He's got credentials. He's won a Brit Award. You know, he's he's his songs have streamed for like for really big artists, and he's a new he's a new artist in his own right that wants to set something up. So it, it felt like the right fix of someone that's going to write their own material. He could bring on great songwriters, and he collaborated with loads of different writers. And then in the end, he went with um, the song that Adam, Ed, and Ian wrote. Um, and again, they're great songwriters in their own right, but they only came on board because of James. I don't think they would have written for anyone. I think James is, you know, has got the clout to be able to call them up and say, I'm doing Eurovision, I'm putting my neck on the line, will you write a song with me? And they all go, yeah, we will do it. And you need someone like James to be able to get you to that next step. Um, so that was the choice of James. And then obviously within that, James wrote several different songs that we all listened to. And My Last Breath, I think, was everyone's favourite. There, was there wasn't ever a conversation, I don't think, where it wasn't going to be that song. I think everyone was on board with that, that song. It just felt the, the right thing to do at the right time. And especially, I think it was James's favourite. And you always want to make sure that the artist is the happiest and they're not forced into a situation of not doing a song that they want to do. And James was most excited about that song from a, a point of view of performance and you know, what he'd written. He thought it was the best that he'd written. 
And what were the hopes then for, for My Last Breath? Because I think I remember a quote at the time from somebody at the BBC who said the left-hand side of the board would be, you know, would be a good result then. So was that the first plan? And then it would be developing over the next few years. It would be, okay, then we'll aim for top 10. Then we'll aim for top five. Was it just left-hand side is a good place, is a good aim for the first year with BMG? Yeah, left-hand side is good. And I think... You know, I understand why people would be like, why don't you want to win? And it's not that we don't want to win. Of course, it would be great to win. But I think it's just about re-establishing that we, we just need to do well. And you could take a gamble and try and win, but that obviously could, like the Netta toy, I mean, that could have gone either way. It's a great pop song, great performance. But you never know with those songs. It's not as nailed on as some of the other ones. So, yeah, it was to try and get on the left-hand side. And it's, sort of, it's frustrating in a way to think of everything aligning with James and then uh, Jerry Reeve, who, uh, who is our creative, you might uh, remember from the, I think we showed a little bit from the Come Together show of the staging, which was a huge sort of LED cube, um, which had a girl inside it. And, and the plan was that James would be on this cube. It would be filled with, uh, the LED cube would be filled with water and it would have someone inside it. So you would see all around it. And then uh, on the chorus, James was going to strike the box and then the water would empty out all over the floor of the, stage so it was really impressive and expensive uh but that's the thing that you can do when you've got a label as well because you you then have you know bbc and the budget that we've got for eurovision plus the label and i think that's what you see in a lot of other countries where they have the elaborate staging it's because you have the help of a label as well to be able to fund those bigger uh, more creative ideas so it's a shame that we never got to to see that and weirdly Right before it got cancelled, the day before that, we were actually filming the girl underwater. So we'd seen all the rushes for it. So we actually, as much as everyone uh, was erring on the side of caution of will it, won't it happen? I, I, I always remember back and think, God, we really didn't know that it wasn't going to happen. Even though you think it might happen, we were still filming the day before because we had to you know, get everything done on a, a timeline. And I know that we're in trouble but I swear that we'll survive if we were deep sea divers. And no one came to find us. If you had nothing left, I'd give you my last breath. So, when did you first get? an inkling that it wasn't going to happen then because we got that announcement back in what March was it did, but you were busy the day before so I imagine you found out pretty close to when we did as well yeah I was in Rotterdam on I think it was like the, the 10th or 11th of March traveled over and obviously looking back now coronavirus was even though we thought it was everywhere like it was that was the peak of people contracting coronavirus and I was out in Rotterdam for the delegation meeting, not thinking any, not really not thinking anything of it. I was aware of it, but you know, we were we were all together at that event. Uh, you know, people from all countries together. And then two weeks afterwards, it was it was cancelled, which is really difficult for everyone involved because we just got to a place where you know the song had been launched a month before. It was doing well on streaming numbers and James was really happy with it and it was doing well on Spotify. And actually James was just getting ready to go on a promo tour around Europe, which everything was sort of held like, let's wait a little bit longer to see if it's going to happen. So it's a shame, I think, as well for James that he never got to do any of those things and promote that song. But it's the same for every artist, isn't it? I totally understand why it didn't happen. But yeah, right up until, like I said, the day before, we were 
we were pressing ahead as if it was going to happen because you don't really have any choice because if we, if we would have just waited, we wouldn't have been able to turn around all the stuff we needed to do in time, especially when you're building props and things. Sometimes they've got to arrive in Rotterdam like three weeks before or a week before the rehearsals, which is like middle of April. So unless we started building them in end of March, they wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been ready in time. I mean, what do you do then? How quickly do you turn your attention to something else? Because the BBC then put out the, the Come Together show. Is that immediately in the pipeline or, or is it a case of, right, we'll, we'll step back for a moment? I mean, how important was it to get, that, get some original content out on Eurovision weekend? Um, well, I think that turned around pretty quick from what I remember. I think we were starting on Come Together like a week after it had been cancelled. Because obviously BBC One have got a big hole in their schedule. It's three hours to fill and it's Eurovision night. And then Kate Phillips, who was uh, the controller of the entertainment at BBC at the time, uh, really wanted to keep some Eurovision content in there. And at the time, the Shine a Light show was sort of muted, but we didn't know what it was. So we didn't know if it would appeal to the audience or whether we would be better to do something ourselves. And I think that's why it was quickly commissioned that we would do come together. So we would definitely have some content on on BBC One. And then we talked about what that would be. And I think the whole, me as a fan thinks, what do I actually like about Eurovision? If, it, if we're not gonna get Eurovision, what do you want? And I think the voting is such a massive part of that because especially in coronavirus, where at that time when we're in lockdown and people don't see each other, there was no programming like that. Everyone, every, everything felt like it was on Zoom and it just felt, what can we do that actually feels like everyone's watching the same thing at the same time and interacting? which was why we went with the, the vote show of sort of the best Eurovision songs. Just so people could actually watch it together, reminisce about it, it would feel like Eurovision. I think the, the plan was very early on to make it feel like a Eurovision, which is why it started with a bit of an intro from Graham with his commentary and the postcards in between each one. So you would sort of feel like that was the show that you were still watching. Let's say, you know, you did do a tremendous job and the wider BBC team as well, because the amount of programming we got was extraordinary there was so much wasn't there <laughs> oh we're not complaining though we're not complaining not at all um but then after that night then how quickly do you turn your attention to 2021 well actually you would think it would be pretty quick but um so over summer we've had uh usually the delegations don't get together until march and you sort of updated on email because it's sort of a straightforward process of what's happening during the year but obviously this year has been quite different where We've been online sort of every month because they've had to update on what the contingency measures are for this year. Um, so it wasn't as quick as straight after May because we had to wait and see, was it actually happening and in, and in what form? And I, I can't remember when that was decided. But as soon as that was decided, that's when we started planning. But to be honest, a lot of this year has been, uh, or the last couple of months has been planning the contingency. Like, what are we actually going to do, you know, the EBU have said that they want smaller teams to go out for the delegations, which I totally understand. There's no point sending everyone out. And obviously the BBC have a huge team because we have BBC Four and BBC Radio Two go out as well. Um, and there's all the, the digital team and the press team. There's quite a big team that go out from the BBC, including all the BBC news people. So obviously that's all had to be scaled down for 2021. But in the best possible way of you know, the programming will still happen. It's just how do we make it work without sending as many people over? And there is a way to do it. And obviously, as you know, the, the backing singers don't have to be live this year, which helps if you, if you don't have to take them out. It will just reduce numbers a bit. But sort of that has been our planning for the last 
couple of months and then obviously the live on tape backup is a new addition which is um interesting to to try and do within the midst of everything else um but yeah that's another thing to to sort out when we would do that before and obviously make it look make it look good enough now there is one person who does have to go out there and that is of course the artist i understand you've got to be tight-lipped at uh, around some of this but what do we know currently? I mean, there's a lot of artists who've already been announced uh, for other countries. There's a lot of artists who've already been told, sorry, we're not going to choose you. So do we know where we stand currently with, with James Newman? Uh, I can't mention anything about 2021 yet. I know that's what you want me to talk about. <laughs> uh, I can't only because, you know, it's all about the, you know, the process of, of that. And I can't say anything too soon, just until everything's sort of signed on the dotted line. There's still a great opportunity, as we know, Eurovision will happen in some form this year, which I, th- I think is a guarantee that everyone needed. Because I think what you couldn't end up with is a situation like last year where it doesn't happen and there's still no competition element. But the live on tape means that whatever happens, there will be a show. As we saw in junior Euro- Eurovision, I think it worked really, really well. Obviously, it would be great if we can be in a live situation where everything's done live. But I still think that is the next best possible scenario that has to happen where they're either pre-recorded in the week or worst case you have to use your live on tape backup when do you think we're going to hear something as fans because <laughs> you, you know what we're like we are desperate to know stuff and that bbc uvision twitter account lies dormant for a lot of the time so when do you think we can expect something at least well definitely in 2021 <laughs> no i think it'll be i think it'll be early next year I think it'll be early next year. And I think I, I totally get it. And, uh, you know, when I wasn't working on it, all I wanted was any little glimmer of, can you tell us anything? Is James back? Can you tell us anything about the song? But I think because obviously internally, everything's still sort of being, you know, fine-tuned. You don't want to say anything before everything's actually, everyone's happy and everyone's, you know, on the same page. So just need to make sure that everything's like that first before we say. What's the long-term plan then, if I can ask you about that? Because you mentioned earlier on about, you know, left-hand side of the board for 2020 would have been good. But do you have ambitions going forward over the next, what, two, three, four, five years or anything like that? Oh, me personally would love to, you know, if James would have done well at Eurovision, and obviously we, we don't know how well he would have done in 2020, I mean, there was the encouraging Swedish vote that they had where he scored with both the public and the jury. And obviously it's not as big a show when you're voting on a music video, but that was sort of encouraging. I don't think Sweden have voted for us for a long time. So even just to get some points out of Sweden, who are probably, you would say, are the most interested in Eurovision of all the countries that take part because of how big Melody Festival is and how well they usually do. So that was sort of a good seal of approval, but obviously you can't really take too much home from that. But I mean, for me, it would have been great if James could get a top 10 result. He would have got really good streaming numbers. And then you would be able to this year go, okay, this is what happened last year. And then every year you're sort of adding to the the level of artists that is willing to put um, their neck on the line, as it were. Or hopefully you don't even have to say that phrase anymore because you wouldn't be putting your neck on the line. You would have people saying, I've got a song that's perfect for Eurovision. I want to go. I mean, that would be my dream if you can get an artist that people already know of that say, I want to do it next year. I've got a song that's perfect because that doesn't happen. And I think I've obviously read tweets before from people like James Blunt and Paloma Faith saying, call me up. But the reality is that if you do contact them, it 
it's not uh, it's not it's not that they go oh I, I would love to do it but I'm too busy they just don't want to do it and I think it's more obviously they've got labels as well but what what would they gain out of doing it I think it's one thing to say it on social media but then to actually get in the process of doing it is a different different question and I think what we need to do is have like three years of doing really well and hopefully that will that will come so let me ask you a bit of a I suppose it's a bit of a hypothetical question, but if in a few years' time we start to get this success, who who do you think you'd like to see take part? God, I don't know actually who I'd love to take part. Um, I always feel like you know, like the M and Eks or someone like that. For me, it would be I would love someone who feels who feels like they're representing a current British music scene. I know that names like Dua Lipa are so big. But that feels like people know that she's British and that feels like the sound that is that is current in this country and that's what's doing well. So someone like an M&EK or Dua Lipa would be great. I just feel like they would be the sort of best representation if we, if we want to replicate our own music charts in Eurovision, which I think is what a lot of the other countries are also doing now. I know back in the 90s when I loved it uh, growing up, like Gina G going to number one was like, the best thing that ever happened. I mean, it was, it feels so weird though now because it was a typical Eurovision song. But then in those times, I think you could have a typical Eurovision song and it could also go to number one. But I think now you've got to have more of a streaming hit. And then how important do you think that is then that we're going to try and replicate the actual British music scene? Because the British music scene is one of the best out there isn't it really so we should really be putting up the best artists and the best songwriters shouldn't we we shouldn't just be settling for or settling for anything really we should be aiming the aiming the sights really high yeah absolutely and i think i think it's difficult isn't it because you you want to aim as as high as possible and replicate the charts but you don't you know a, a song that streams well on spotify doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to do well at eurovision because eurovision is a different beast it has to be a visual thing that people hook onto as as well as much as it's a good song, it's, it's trying to get all the things to align together. But I think I feel like to improve the results, you need to get songwriters who are tried and tested and are writing hits for current British artists and artists that are so used to performing and, you know, they're not frightened by Eurovision because it's something that they do day to day. Like when you see the biggest stars that come from Russia, they're so comfortable because it's what they do all the time. And you'd hope that, you know, in the next couple of years, we can also get, to that stage but I think you can only do that can't you when you have a, a run of success so it's starting sort of stepping stepping stones so say that does happen and the UK gets a good string of results and then potentially you never know the UK wins Eurovision do you know what the situation would be then if it if the contest came to the UK does the BBC have these plans in a in a very dusty filing cabinet somewhere about what they would do no, not at all. Not as far as I know anyway. No, there's no plan of it would be held here or where would it be? Um, no, there's no there's no plans like that. That would be the dream though for you, wouldn't it? To be involved in a Eurovision production on home soil. Absolutely. I mean, that that would be incredible. And I think if I if I were to if if we were to win and I would get the opportunity to do that, then I think that's where I would like to do that and then go that's it and let someone else take over because I think you can't for me anyway that's the pinnacle and once you've achieved that sort of that's the goal for me and then once I've done that sort of ambition achieved and moved on to something else and then let someone else let someone else have a go cut to me 20 years and I'm still doing it and still trying to get a win (laughs) 
Oh, very good. Well, fingers crossed at least for the next few years, because I think there is a lot of potential there. Uh, Thanks very much for your time. I've got one more question to ask you, which is a question we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, You'll know this being a fan for so long is you often get asked, what is your favorite Eurovision song of all time? But when people come on the podcast, we like to ask, what's your second favorite Eurovision song of all time? Okay, my second favorite. Good question. Uh, My second favorite is probably uh, Volve Conmigo, the Spanish entry in 1995. Wow, that is niche. It is niche. That that is my fa- that's my uh, that is my favorite uh, song, my second favorite song. My favorite, as I said before, is uh, Genie G, just because that represents so much of the time of me growing up, and that was sort of my peak of enjoyment in Europe, and I still love it now. But that was sort of the growing up and the years that I remember so much, and that being such a big hit here and being number one is sort of my fondest memory of it. This is the Euro Trip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. So there you have it. A wonderful insight there into how the BBC's Eurovision coverage works from the series producer, Lee Smithhurst. A fascinating insight, as you've said there, as to how the BBC approached the contest and what I'm taking away from that, because I think it's it's very easy for us to be critical, especially on social media, of what the BBC are doing and, you know, oh, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? But with people like Lee involved, I think Eurovision is in safe hands, actually, as far as the BBC and the United Kingdom are concerned, because what I got from that interview is that the team really, really do care. And Lee is a Eurovision fan as much as you are, as I am, as you listening to this podcast are. So it's good to know that the people responsible for the United Kingdom's entries in Eurovision really do care about getting a good result. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And Lee was very open and honest about some of the previous years that the BBC have submitted songs for where things just haven't worked or where the national final hasn't worked and the support there for the artist afterwards hasn't been there either. So especially for 2020 just gone and the partnership they had with BMG, uh, it was a really good plan that they had in place there to make sure that they were going to select the best name the best songwriters and I think that was one of the things he tried to get across there is that it's really important that the BBC tried to replicate the British music scene because it's no secret the British music scene is one of the best in the world so it would be silly of us not to send some of our best songwriters and some of our best artists. I don't know about you but I'm also devastated that we never got to see that staging that was planned for Eurovision 2020. James Newman a massive Perspex, box, water, some, oh, it sounded incredible. It did sound incredible, didn't it? It's such a shame, as you say, we didn't get to see James Newman on the Eurovision stage. And one thing, I was really disappointed we didn't get a little nugget about Eurovision 2021 from him there, but clearly he's very tight-lipped and surely that means there's some big news coming around the corner very soon. Yeah, I don't think we'll have to wait for long for that one. So uh, keep an eye on our Twitter, actually, because if there is any news, we'll uh, we'll pop it on there for the BBC, for the UK and Eurovision in 2021. Uh, just a reminder, the Twitter account as well is at Podcast. We're also on Instagram as well. And I really, really hope you've enjoyed the gifts that me and James have given you over the last couple of weeks because it's a pleasure to have you with us every single week. And we didn't want to leave you without an episode over the festive period because you know what you've probably got a little bit more time on your hands you're just relaxing chilling out at home so i hope that we've filled some of your time with a couple of brilliant interviews 
Yeah, as Rob says, hopefully you have enjoyed listening to this at home. Let us know on Twitter at Eurotrip Podcast if you have. You can also subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars wherever you're listening to let us know if you enjoyed it. And that will also mean that this podcast reaches more and more Eurovision fans as well. But this is our last episode of 2020, Rob. It is our last episode of 2020. What a ride we've been on since the first episode of this wonderful podcast popped up in early August. And it's been great to have you along with us every single week. And we're going to be here with you every single week in the run-up to Eurovision 2021. We certainly will be. And just for you, Rob, as well, I've written down a load of thank yous as well, because I just thought it's, it's best to say our big thank yous, isn't it, at the end of 2020 before we jump into 2021. So from me, Rob, thank you. To Nathan, Anthony, Richard, Kieran, Neil and Alistair, who all did the News in 90 for us this year. Thanks to Michal, Louise, Emily and Toby Eck, who appeared on our Melody Festival and specials and the Junior Eurovision specials as well. Thanks to Samuel Deacon, who was the quiz master for the European quiz and is the genius behind all of the graphics you see for the Eurotrip online. Thanks to all our big guests as well that we've spoken to over the last few weeks and months. Thanks to you for listening. And Rob, thanks to you as well for letting me loose on your wonderful podcast. Oh, well, James, thank you to you for agreeing to, to hop on with me and, and for joining me on this wild ride that we bring you every single Wednesday. So it is a joy. No, thank you, James, for being part of it. Thank you, as James said, to you for listening. And if you thought the treats from us were done in 2020, you're wrong because we've got some brilliant guests already lined up for January and beyond. Next week, week one of the Eurotrip podcast in 2021. Another winner on the podcast. That's right. Another winner here on the Eurotrip. So you do not want to miss that. So until next week, until the first episode of the Eurotrip 2021, for me, it's goodbye. And for me, it's goodbye. And from us both, we can do an awful timed Happy New Year. <laughs> right, ready? Ready. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.